welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. Thrilled you're here. We're going to try and conclude the series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. Um, so far, we called the, the series The Challenge Of, and so far we've covered uh, the challenge of atheism, the challenge of feminism, the challenge of pluralism, the challenge of scientism. Last week, we talked about the challenge of transgender ideology, and I want to conclude this evening by looking at the challenge of hedonism. And I've left this one till last because I suspect that this is probably the one that affects us most. Um, It's the one that's closest to home for most of us, even though we may not be aware of it. Some of you may be thinking, I've never heard the word before, don't know what it means, but I tell you what, I guarantee there's not a person in the room who at the very least hasn't felt the strong pull of hedonism, and I suspect that believers though you may be, there are many of you who live your lives uh, on the basis of this principle, which is a scary thought. Um, I want to begin this evening by drawing your attention to two very well-known books. One is probably better known than the other. Uh, They are both about the future. They are prophecies, if you like, not not religious prophecies. They are both secular books, but they are prophecies of um, what these authors thought the future might look like. The first, I'm sure you'll be familiar with it, is the better known of the two. It's 1984 by George Orwell. It was written in 1949, so quite a long time ago. The second of the books, maybe not so well known, is A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and that was written in 1932. These two authors certainly did not see the future in the same way, and yet both were very accurate predictions but, but in different parts of the world, as it were, geographically. So maybe you'll be aware 1984 was a very dark, dystopian view of the future in which Orwell saw society as being oppressed by an external authority that in the book he calls Big Brother. And Orwell predicted that Big Brother would control, would control the populace with a heavy hand, uh, books would be banned, information would be closely controlled, that the truth would be concealed and manipulated and withheld from the masses, and that the people in that society would largely be managed and ruled by the infliction of pain. I think that some, perhaps we might even dare to say much, of what Orwell predicted came true in the former communist bloc countries of Eastern Europe, where the government really did function as a big brother. Aldous Huxley's view of the future was entirely different. In Huxley's vision of the future, no big brother was needed to deprive the people of their autonomy, their maturity, or their history. As he saw it, people would come to love their oppression and adore the technologies that would undo their capacity to think. So Orwell feared those who would ban books. Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban books because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those uh, that Big Brother would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that uh, we would be given so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and narcissism. Orwell feared, feared the truth uh, would be concealed from us. 
Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial one. In 1984, people were controlled by inflicting pain. In a brave new world, they were controlled by inflicting pleasure. Orwell feared that what we hate would ruin us. Huxley feared that what we loved would ruin us. Both these two books, very accurate. Orwell, very accurate in the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, dominated by communism. I think Huxley's view of the future has come to pass in what we call the Western nations, of which you and I are part. Huxley's brave new world was a culture dominated by a philosophy called hedonism. And it's that that I want to explore with you this evening. The basic idea of hedonism is that the essence of life, the essence of good and evil, are defined in terms of our pleasures and our pains. So pleasure is seen as the highest good of man and the guiding principle of human action. If any of you have ever done any work uh, in the field of philosophy, you'll have come across the concept of and the quest for what is called by philosophers the summum bonum of life. Now the summum bonum is about what's the greatest good What's, what constitutes the good life? What, what should we be living for? Every philosopher has philosophized about it. Every great writer has written about it. Every thoughtful person has thought about it. You've thought about it, even if you don't think you have. You see, we all choose one thing rather than another because somehow we think it's better and that it contains more good for us and more value. Now, I know lots of people probably couldn't articulate an answer to the question, what is your summum bonum of life? Nevertheless, you have one. And if we were to observe you for any length of time, I think we could probably make a fairly accurate guess as to what that was. Time, energy, and money are three fairly accurate measures of what you actually value in your life. And I tell you, for a huge number of people in the West, perhaps the majority of people in the West, our goal is to maximize our pleasure, minimize our pain. That's hedonism. I, I get to talk to a lot of people and uh, a lot of Christian parents, and the thing that they say most often about what they want for their children is, I just want them to be happy. And as I've said a number of times in our congregation, it's not that I want my children to be unhappy, but I hope that they want a little more than just that. Because that's hedonism. That's a philosophy that dominates much of our world. It was what Aldous Huxley feared. Hedonism, by the way, isn't a new philosophy. It has its roots in antiquity. It can be seen as a formal philosophical system in ancient, Greek, in ancient Greece. The Greek word for pleasure is hedony from which obviously we get our English word hedonism. In the late fourth century, there were a group in Greece called the Cyreniacs, and the Cyreniacs were what we might call crass hedonists. Their motto could be summed up perhaps in the phrase wine, woman, and song. By the way, that always reminds me of a funny story I heard, or at least I thought it was funny, about a CEO who was reporting back to the shareholders about a poor year's performance. 
and he blamed the poor year's performance on the fact that there had been far too much wine, woman, and song that year, and he promised the shareholders that the following year they wouldn't sing as much. I suspect that that man was a genuine hedonist. I suspect that an ancient Cyreniac, actually dress code excluded, would feel very much at home in our modern Western cities with its drugs, its alcohol, and its meat market mentality. In ancient Cyreniac hedonism, getting drunk or getting high, because drug taking isn't actually as modern as most people think it is, it was a view as a way, or, or they viewed it as a way of gaining the ability to break free from the chains that inhibit people. It allows people to get beyond the normal states of consciousness and awareness that they feel normally impede them. And again, I don't know how many times I've heard it said, modern day hedonists say something almost the same. I drink or I snort because it makes me feel less shy, less inhibited, it gets me out of myself, I can be the life of the party. It's not that, it's not that new. It's an ancient philosophy. You know, it's, it's no secret that alcohol and other chemical substances are what we call disinhibitors, and that the end result of taking them in copious measures is decisions that you would never make under normal circumstances. Sexual liaisons and hookups, illegal behavior, stupid, sometimes life-changing decisions that you would rarely make under normal circumstances and very, very rarely make you feel freer in the long term. In actual fact, can do exactly the opposite, can shackle you for a lifetime. Now, the Cyreniacs weren't the only expression of hedonism in ancient Greek. They, they represented what we might call downtown hedonism. But there was an uptown version of it as well. Uptown hedonism was reflected in the beliefs and practices of a group called the Epicureans. The Epicureans were much more sophisticated than the Cyreniacs. Even today, we use the word Epicurean to describe a person with exquisite tastes, a person who can identify the finest of wines, a person that has a gourmet palate and understands the intricacies of the culinary arts. We would, we would describe them as Epicurean. King Solomon was, in his time, for a time, the dean, if you like, of hedonists. He went down that pathway with a gusto that many of us can't afford. He had an abundance of resources and was able to explore the hedonistic path, as I say, in a way that many can't. And he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes. He said, I said to myself, come now, be merry, enjoy yourself to the full. I decided to try the road of drink and I followed the path of folly. And in verse seven, there were many beautiful concubines. We're talking wine, woman, and song. And he talked about it and he said, I pursued laughter and pleasure. These are two different words in the Hebrew. They aren't just two words, uh, two ways of saying the same thing. According to one scholar, laughter was losing your discernment and going completely over the top. That's the crass hedonism of the Cyreniacs. That's downtown hedonism. Pleasure, on the other hand, indicates a much more refined, epicurean, uptown hedonism. One is full-on party mode, get smashed. The other is highbrow refinement, drink red wine and get art. And in their own way, 
both the Cyreniacs and the Epicureans had determined that the sum and bonum of their lives was all about maximizing pleasure and avoiding pain. Solomon goes on in the book of Ecclesiastes to brilliantly and somewhat brutally describe the impact of what we now call the hedonistic paradox. And that paradox, born out of the observation of more than simply Solomon, is that the more pleasure you seek on earthly terms, what Solomon called under the sun, with no reference to anything above, just on an earthly level, he, the paradox is the more you seek it, the more it eludes you. Instead of the satisfaction and happiness that it initially promises, hedonism, it seems, delivers the pain, the frustration, the heartbreak, and the disillusionment of broken promises. And Solomon described it as vanity of vanities. Somebody quipped it may be champagne the night before, but it's real pain in the morning. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 17 in the message translation puts it this way. You're addicted to thrills. What an empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. That's the hedonistic paradox. Perhaps even more ironic is the fact that even when we do manage to achieve the pleasures that we sought so earnestly, over time they leave us sated and bored. It seems that if we don't reach the level of pleasure we pursue, we lose. And if we do live, if we do achieve the level of pleasure we seek, we lose. Oscar Wilde, the brilliant poet and playwright who himself was a perfect illustration of the hedonistic paradox, once quipped, there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what one wants and the other is getting it. And the last is much worse than the first. The last is a real tragedy. Solomon points out that at its root, hedonism is a philosophy of despair. Essentially, what hedonism is saying is if my life is bound in its totality between the poles of birth and death, if there's no eternal significance and everything that happens to me happens under the sun, then why not grab all the pleasure I can? Because as the saying goes, you only go round once. If, if death is the ultimate, the final ultimate, as Solomon sees so clearly in Ecclesiastes, then as he says, life is vanity. It's meaningless. And the best that we can hope for is the fleeting respite of temporary relief. And, and it's the idea that temporary euphoria is better than none at all. So a cocaine high, a sexual orgasm, a gourmet meal, a fine wine, a drunken stupor, at least briefly they offer respite from the constant haunting despair from which none can escape. So the classic hedonistic phrase is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Friends, our mortality, the transience and brevity of our lives cast a long shadow over our pleasures. There's an elephant in the room. You're gonna die. Don, I came to church to be encouraged, you know. Couldn't you do a little TED talk and inspire me? Well, you want to read Ecclesiastes. It's not exactly the TED talk inspirational stuff that our heart wants, you know. It's not chicken soup for the Christian soul. Not necessarily that I'm against those things, but we need to be realists, and Solomon was. And some of us live in a delusional world that our lives will go on and on forever, and quite frankly, 
it is exactly that, delusional. That elephant, that mortality, that brevity and transience, you, you can hide it. You can hide an elephant with a whole lot of mice if there are enough of them. People live their lives with a plethora of little diversions, little mice that wards off the one big thing, which reminds me of King Herod. There's a passage in Mark 6 that's always fascinated me. Herod had arrested John, he'd put him in prison, but he'd get him in and hear him preach. And when he heard John preach, he was deeply moved. The, the, living, the um, message says, whenever he listened to him, he was miserable with guilt, and yet he couldn't stay away. Something in John kept pulling him back. The King James has this interesting little phrase. It says, when Herod heard John, he did many things. It's like, What? He did many things. Well, the many things became a diversion to Herod that stopped him doing the one thing that he needed to do, which was repent. And I tell you, you can hide an elephant for a time with mice if there are enough of them. Some people treat the elephant with indifference. You know, like, well, there's an elephant in the room, yawn, who cares? When your number's up, it's up, you know. You go when you go, and, and you hear people say those kinds of things. You know, it always sounds to me like the little boy who whistles very loudly as he passes by the town cemetery at dusk. Was it Hamlet who thinks, me thinks thou dost protest too much? Indifference, by the way, I suspect, is found among the young, the healthy, and those with plenty of discretionary income. The old, the sick, and the poor tend to be a bit more in touch with their mortality. Some choose just to ignore the elephant. Don't look at it. Don't talk about it. Perhaps it'll go away if we pretend it doesn't exist. So we go on with our fun. But that elephant casts a, last shadow, a large shadow. Proverbs 14, 13 says, superficial laughter can hide a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the pain resurfaces. And when you're alone in your bed at night, where does your heart go to, my lovely, as the song says? Because we all have to face our mortality. Jesus told a parable about a hedonist. You've probably heard it, but I'm going to read it to you again. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. He couldn't get everything in. He thought about his problem, some problem, and finally exclaimed, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough. I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now, come on, take it easy, wine, woman, and song for you. But God said to him, fall. Tonight you die. Then who will get it all? Yes, every man is a fool who gets rich on earth, but not in heaven. Jesus called this hedonist a fool. Now, in biblical times, what you've got to understand is when we talk about foolishness, it's not, it's not a, an intellectual context, it's a moral one. He wasn't simply a fool because he was intellectually deficient. He wasn't a fool because he was wealthy. He was a fool because he lived without thinking about God and eternity. He lived as if he always would. And the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This man had no sense of the transience of his life. He refused to consider the elephant that was in the room. He simply lived as if he always would. God does not figure in his calculations. He does not, at any point in the story, think about where the abundance came from, the source of the abundance, the perhaps divine purpose that there might have been in the abundance. He doesn't, God doesn't figure in his calculations. Neither does anybody else for that matter. In verse 17, it says, he talked to himself. 
Now, that may not seem strange to you, probably doesn't in the context of our Western individualism, but it's very noteworthy language in this culture. We individualistic Westerners make most of our decisions in this manner. We, we think about it ourselves. We plan our future. We plan our purchases. We may plan our OE and even our marriage partner with hardly a reference to other people. And if we do talk to other people, it's usually to inform them what we've already decided as opposed to actually asking for their input. In a Middle Eastern culture, that would be considered outrageous. At this time, thinking, talking, deciding was done in community. Even the smallest of transactions would never be entered into without some protracted discussion among the community. This fool consults no one. His reasonings are circular refortification of his already established assumptions and presuppositions. It's all about me. And you know, about hedonism is incredibly narcissistic. Six times in this passage, he uses the word I, he uses the word my five times, I will occurs another four times. His wine, woman, and song, by the way, is suddenly rudely interrupted by the elephant that rolls over and crushes him at the most inappropriate of moments. Verse 20, fool, tonight you die. And I think if you could listen really carefully, you could probably hear the echo of Solomon's words, vanity of vanities, it's vanity. And Jesus hits hard and he says, it doesn't really matter what you get in this world. If you haven't taken care of these things, none of that matters. Listen, when people have no sense of eternity, no sense of the transience, the brevity of their lives, hedonism is the most often taken pathway. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 21 says, the empty-headed treat life as a plaything. The perceptive grasp its meaning and make a go of it. Now, I guess as, as you're listening, if you're listening um, to this talk, you might imagine that somehow God isn't really into having fun and, and really kind of is, is frowns on people who enjoy themselves. He, he's not for pleasure. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. Of course he isn't against pleasure. He made us in his image, and part of that is the capacity for pleasure, for delight, for happiness. The problem isn't pleasure. The problem is that because of our fallenness, we focus on the wrong objects of and the wrong means of achieving pleasure. We get things hopelessly out of balance. And it doesn't matter what the pleasure is. It doesn't matter actually how good it is. If it's not kept in proper balance, then ultimately it ends up distorting reality and destroying our God-given appetites. For example, I love the way the message translates Proverbs chapter 25, verse 16. When you're given a box of candy, don't gulp it all down. Eat too much chocolate and you make yourself sick. Some people say, bring it on. <laughs> you know, can it possibly be that you can have too much chocolate? Of course you know the answer to that. No matter how good it is, when it's out of balance, when it's distorted, ultimately it distorts something. It robs you of something. Blaise Pascal, the Frenchman, once commented, there was once in man a true happiness of which now remained to him only the mark and empty trace. 
which in vain he tries to fill from all his surroundings, but these are inadequate because of the infinite abyss. Can, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. He's actually quoting Solomon, Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, God has put in the hearts of every person a God-shaped vacuum, and you can't fill it with the things of this earth. Nothing will satisfy. You can put as much in there as you like, and it just disappears into the abyss and ultimately will leave you either dissatisfied if you don't get enough or sated and bored if you get enough. It's a lose-lose. Every lasting pleasure that the hedonist craves can actually only ultimately be found in a relationship with God. Philosophers have gone on to say perhaps every pleasure actually is ultimately designed to lead us toward God. It's been famously said the man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously seeking God. Really? I don't get that. Well, what that's meant to explain is the fundamental orientation of the human heart is to seek God and the peace and the meaning and the truth that only he can bring. And the God-shaped hole that we're all created with cannot be filled by anything else. And you can chase after everything else. You can chase after women or men, romances, riches, power, position, knowledge. And the reality is even as you do those things, this deep longing from inside says they can only be filled in one place. The universal longing for joy and happiness and for pleasure is the loving gift of a good creator God and isn't sinful. They are, however, I think, intended to be simply byproducts of a relationship with him. You concentrate on those things, they will elude you. You concentrate on your relationship with him, and he's able to give you those things and more. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. One of the things we have to understand come to grips with, is God is not the means to our end. We don't use God to get pleasure. We worship God, we serve God, we are his, um, we're called to, into a relationship with him. Those things come almost by accident. As I say, a byproduct. We don't use him as the means to get to them. He is the end, not the means to the end. He's the ultimate pleasure. And all of the lesser pleasures find their fulfillment and place in relationship to and with him. The classic passage in Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. You know the tragic thing is I look around and I see so many believers who, who give lip service to the fact that they would want to serve God, that their lives have been given to God and yet, their pursuit is not about God. Their pursuit is about their own personal satisfaction and God simply becomes the butler to serve up for them the things that they think they want or deserve. That's why, by the way, so many people get so bent out of shape when life gives them something other than what they want and they go blaming God for it. I think hedonism has got a grip a significant grip in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. That's why I hear people say, well, all I want is to be happy. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want you to be sad. 
but, I, but I, above all, want you to embrace following the Lord Jesus Christ. You said, pick up your cross, take it up daily and follow me. And that's the nature of the life that we're called, for, called to. We call it a cruciform life, which means there will be dimensions of our life that get crucified and that we don't actually get all that we want. We don't always find everything that we think we want, but as we pursue him, ultimately we find the wholeness that all of those other things promised but could not deliver. You say, well, Don, I know people who followed Jesus all of their lives and they died and, and you know, da-da-da-da-da, and, and, and they didn't get, you know, in this life, the kingdom of God and all those things. Friends, the reason we say things like that is we are bounded by those poles of life and death in our thinking. And, and scripturally, life goes beyond. And I, and I don't think anybody in eternity is gonna say, well, well, you know what, Jesus, I'm really disappointed. You know, just, it just wasn't all that you promised it would be. I, I don't think that we're gonna be pointing our finger at him and saying, you didn't deliver. I honestly think we'll be going, my God, I didn't know it could be this good. If only I had lived full on with everything I had for every moment of my life. And that's the challenge I wanna leave with you this evening. You know, there are some of you who are on the margins of Christianity. You're here tonight mostly because your friends are here. You, you could have just as easy gone somewhere else if you had had a better offer. You just didn't have a better offer. Classic millennials, eh? Leave it to the very last minute. What's the best offer? Oh, I'll go with this one. <laughs> Says the cynical old baby boomer. <laughs> I tell you what, you won't get a better offer than Jesus. And what I'd love for you to do tonight is weigh up those thoughts. Though you may be 20, healthy, and have discretionary income, there's an elephant in your room. And I don't mean to depress you. We're just talking about realities. And you have to face that elephant and think, what am I gonna do with that? How am I gonna live in the light of that? And I don't want it to be said of you, fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. And what will you do with all of those trivial little pleasures that occupied so much of your life and robbed so much of your time? Fool. I don't want that to be said to you. So I'm saying it to you, to stir you, so that will not ultimately be said to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible grace that you have manifest toward us and that you reached down to touch our lives when we weren't even looking for you when in many cases we'd turned our backs on you uh, and we were just simply carving out our own little kingdom and you in your incredible grace reached down to touch us, to turn us. And Lord, we just wanna say thank you for that. The cry of our heart is that we would be able to live in a way that brings you honor in our world. But Father, we would not simply be shaped by the cultural forces of this world, but we would be... Um, not squeezed into its mold, but reshaped by the power of your spirit working deeply in us to make us more and more like Christ. We give you our lives, our hopes, our dreams. 
We give you, Lord, the longing we have for happiness and for pleasure. We know, Lord, there's nothing in this world that will satisfy that demand, those drives, in the way that only you can. So would you allow, by the power of your spirit, us to be gripped by the invitation that you've issued us to have relationship with you, to have friendship with you. I pray for people tonight, Father, that they would make a choice deep in their hearts as they think about what's been said and they would determine for all of their lives to live for you. Let it be so, Father, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.